You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, reversing the curse. We've been working our way through the book of Mark. And the first thing Jesus starts talking about in the book of Mark is the kingdom of God. And in Mark chapter 4, he told quite a few parables about the kingdom of God. He's teaching them, what is this kingdom of God that he speaks of? And one of the things we learn about the kingdom of God is that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. That this world was created paradise, but now it's paradise lost. And someday, when the kingdom of God is fully here, Jesus will put things right again. What he's brought in is kind of phase one of the kingdom of God. But what this is all pointing toward is the full and final revelation of the kingdom. And what he's showing us is this is really going to happen. And as we move out of Mark chapter 4 and into chapter 5, Mark arranges four very specific miracles to show us the power that Jesus has to bring in the kingdom. How do we know he's really going to be able to make this world the way that it's supposed to be? Mark's going to show us. There are four forces that have ravaged mankind since the very beginning. One is nature, the forces of nature. Another is demons, evil spiritual beings. And then finally, sickness and death. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus calming the storm with a single word. He just tells the storm to shut up. Last week, we saw Jesus cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and drive demons out of a man whose life had been ruined by them. He just tells him to get out. And then this week, we're going to see the final two foes, sickness and death. And you can almost imagine Jesus standing in a boxing ring as one by one, these come down the aisle to fight with him. And we're going to see he he does just as well with sickness and death as he did with the first two. And so Mark chapter 5, verse 21 says, Jesus got into the boat and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Remember, he was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile territory. Now he's moved back into Jewish territory. And the crowds are there again. Jesus' popularity was booming at this time. The crowds loved Jesus almost as much as the religious leaders hated Jesus. And so this time is no different. We see the crowds thronging around Jesus. And we see a religious leader shows up. A leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived. Well, this is the pattern in Mark. We've seen it six times already. The crowds gather around Jesus and then the religious leaders show up to criticize him. This time's a little different. Jairus arrives and instead of criticizing, we see just about as far as you can get from that. When he saw Jesus, he fell down at the feet of Jesus. What is going on here? What what would make this guy break ranks with the rest of the religious party and fall at the feet of Jesus? And the reason for this is because Jairus was in the midst of the crisis of his life. You see, he and his wife, they had one child, a daughter, age 12. And Jairus lived in a time when 60% of all children who survived childbirth were dead by the time they were in the middle of their teenage years. That means once you survived childbirth, which many didn't, there was still less than a 50% chance that you were going to make it into adulthood. And yet, she made it through childbirth. She made it through infancy, through the toddler years, through the elementary years. And here she was. 
She was 12 years old. She was on the verge of becoming a woman. She was the light of his life. So many memories they had together. And now she was sick. And it was bad. And the illness got worse. And it got worse. And he'd seen enough kids die that he knew this is, this is not going to get any better. My daughter is going to die. And he had heard about Jesus. And yet, up until now, he had not been ready to go to Jesus. But at this point, he's got no other options. They've tried everything else. Now he's desperate. And he comes, and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. He doesn't care about his reputation. He doesn't care about the political suicide that this would be or what the other religious leaders would think. He comes to Jesus, and he throws himself at the feet of Christ. And he begins pleading fervently. He says, My little daughter is dying. Please, Jesus, come. Lay your hands on her. Heal her so that she can live. And so he begs Jesus to come. And Jesus agrees. Jesus begins to walk with him. And all the people followed crowding around him. The crowds were still thick around Jesus as they followed him to the, the home of this great man. But as they made their way from the shore back into the town, we find that Jairus wasn't the only person in this crowd who came to the shore looking for Jesus that day. Yeah, he was probably the most wealthy and influential, most powerful person in that crowd. But there was another person there, a woman, who was probably the least wealthy the least influential person in that crowd, the poorest and the loneliness. And she came looking for Jesus too. It says in the midst of the crowds, there was a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. And she'd suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them. But it didn't help. She got no better. In fact, it only made things worse. Yes, 12 years of constant bleeding. You know, what he's talking about here, this would have been uh, menstrual bleeding. You know, apparently one day she started her period, and it didn't stop after a week or two. And the weeks stretched into months. And the months stretched into years. And this created all kinds of suffering. Mark mentions it multiple times, the suffering of this woman that this bleeding created in her life. You know, there was the physical pain that this would have caused. You know, constantly bleeding, she would have been anemic. She would have been tired, nauseous, um, perhaps headaches, shortness of breath. She would have walked around in a constant state of pain. I don't know if you've ever had a um, long-term chronic illness, but this woman had been suffering in this state for 12 years. It also would have been socially alienating. You see, you can read the Old Testament, chapters like Leviticus 15, and you can read about these cleanliness laws. And a, a woman who was menstruating was considered unclean, which sounds worse than it is, okay? Um, basically, back then, when you, when you had your period, it was, it was pretty hard for a woman to function in normal society. We didn't, didn't have a lot of the modern conveniences that we have today to allow for this sort of thing. And so... Um, what they basically said was, you know what, why don't you just take the week off? You are unclean, you're not allowed to go out, you can't go to the temple or the tabernacle. Um, they couldn't even touch other people. If they touched a person, that person was unclean for the rest of the day. And they were like, you know what, we insist. 
take a week's vacation, which was kind of nice, unless that week turned into months, turned into years, and then that week's vacation turned into complete social isolation. You know, the, um, the rabbis had added additional layers of tradition on top of this that had made this even more of a stigma. And as a result, this woman would have lost everything. Her husband would have left her and taken the kids. She couldn't see them anymore, divorced. She would have been rejected from society. She would have been approximately on the level of a leper. That's how low this woman would have been in this society. And so she was completely cut off from society and looked down upon by everyone. This also wiped her out financially with no results. She must have been a woman of means if she had money to spend on doctors, and yet she spent and spent and spent to no avail. It didn't do any good. She borrowed what she could. She spent that, and finally she was done. And you know, some of these remedies, they might have been painful. Some were just downright what we look back on today as pretty silly superstition. In fact, you can read the, the Talmud, which is a collection of teachings from that time, and you can see nine different cures that they had for her condition. Let me read a couple of them to you. It says, one thing we can do here, get three Persian onions, boil them in wine, and make her drink it. So you've, you've infused the wine with onion, Persian onion. And then you have somebody sneak up on her and say, cease your discharge. And that was supposed to work. If that didn't work, though, they had, they had some backups. For example, get another glass of wine and go to a crossroads and have her sit there with a cup of wine in her, in her hand. And you say, you know what? Just enjoy your wine. Nothing happening over here. And then a guy would sneak up behind her and he would frighten her and exclaim, cease your discharge. It's like ancient hiccup cures, but applied to other things. <laughs> And then, if that didn't work, the final cure, go find a white mule, dig through its dung, and fetch a grain of barley from it. Then, have the woman eat the grain of barley. If she can hold that in for one day, her discharge will cease for a day. If for two days, it will cease for two days. And if for three days, it will cease forever. You know, these are the sorts of cures she spent her money on. It's not real surprising these didn't work. Embarrassing, humiliating, painful. And now she's left with nothing. Completely rejected by society. Not to mention, many people thought she was getting what she deserved. There was a teaching that the rabbis had back then, not a biblical teaching. You can see it reflected in John 9, for example, that if you had a disease, it was because you did some, some secret sin and God was finding you out and he brought a curse in your life the disease all disease is caused by sin and so they would look over at her and they would just say boy that woman she used to really be somebody but she sinned and god found her out and you got to wonder if she was starting to wonder that same thing as well and here she was going this was went on for 12 long years as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive, the year she was born, this woman's bleeding began. And she began a long journey of pain. And God saw it all. He saw both of these, these daughters. 
He knew the pain she was going through. He saw. And he saw Jairus' daughter grow up. And he knew the pain that Jairus would go through as well. But God had plans for both of these women. And finally, also as a last resort, she heard about Jesus. And so she thought, I'm going to go and I'm going I'm to try to get healing from Jesus. She came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe because she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. It's kind of primitive superstition here, perhaps. Um, she's going to try to sneak a healing out of Jesus, sneak some power from him. You know, she, she was not allowed to be in this crowd. She was defiling. She was rendering unclean every single person she touched. She definitely shouldn't have been touching this great teacher. A lot of teachers wouldn't even touch women for fear that the woman might be having her monthly, monthly period. She shouldn't have been there. But she thought, if I just disguise myself, I can get in, I can get out, we'll see if it works. She had her plan. And her plan worked. She touched his robe. And Mark tells us, immediately the bleeding stopped. Immediately. After 12 long years, just like that. And she could feel in her body that she'd been healed of that terrible condition. How did she know she was healed? I don't know. I'm not a woman. I hear that women know these things, though. But she knew. Maybe all the symptoms went away as well. The nausea, the, the, the tiredness, the headaches. It was like she was healed, young again, made new. And then she hears exactly the thing she doesn't want to hear. Jesus realized that once the healing power had gone out from him. And so he turned around in the crowd and he said, uh, who touched my robe? Who touched it? She's like, oh. he knows and she knows that he knows. And this is not how the plan was supposed to go. It was either going to work or not, but she wasn't going to get called out in front of the crowd. The disciples are confused. They said, uh, Jesus, look at the crowd pressing around you. Did you notice them? How can you ask who touched me? They're like, um, everyone? Everyone is touching you, Jesus. I think you'd be used to that by now. Who didn't touch you? That would be an easier question to answer. And it would be no one here. But Jesus knew. He's like, not, not just, this, this was the touch of faith. This was a desperate touch of faith. He kept on looking around to see who had done it. He's giving her a chance to step forward here. This woman, her, her faith was this smoldering wick, and he's trying to fan this into flames. Like I said, this is the last thing she wanted. It's also the last thing that Jairus wanted. Here, his daughter is on death's door, the most important person in his life, and all of a sudden Jesus has an attack of OCD. He's worried about someone touching him in a crowd. It's the last thing he wanted. He wanted to get out of there. He had to wait. She had to step forward. That's exactly what Jesus wanted. And he'll do this to us sometimes. There's times where the thing we want him to hurry, 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 he's like, Let's just wait. And it's agonizing. And there's other times where you're like, okay, nothing to see here. Let's move it along, Jesus. And he's like, no, I think we're just going to wait until we talk about this. This is the thing I want to talk about right now. 
Let's wait. Everybody wait. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He knew this woman needed more than physical healing. What she needed was the knowledge of what Jesus thought about her. What did Jesus think about what she had done? She's thinking, did I defile him? Is he mad at me? Does he think I'm this unclean woman? You know, in Greek mythology, Prometheus one time, the story goes, snuck up into the Mount Olympus and stole fire from the gods. And when Zeus found out about it, he was really angry. The power was stolen from him and he chained him up and made an eagle peck out his liver every day and then it would grow back at night and then he would peck out his liver the next day. It was eternal torment. This woman's going to get a very different response from Jesus. Mark tells us, and then that frightened woman burst from the crowd, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her. She came and also, like Jairus, falls to her knees in front of Jesus and told him what she had done. And so here the whole story comes out. The 12 years, the, the spending of the money, the way she's been treated by people, the divorce, losing the children, being rejected, wandering around homeless, in incredible pain, the nausea, the headaches. This is, this is how we know her story. It all comes spilling out before Jesus. And how does he respond to her? What does he call her? Does he call her a dirty woman? Does he rebuke her? No, he says, my daughter. That's what he calls her. My daughter. That's what I think of you, Jesus says. Your faith has made you well. It wasn't some superstitious touch of my robe. It was your trust. I gave you this gift because you trusted in me. And he says, go in peace. Your suffering is finally over. That's a pretty good sentence to hear from Jesus. You know that's a sentence he's going to say to every single one of us someday. We live in a world full of suffering, and when the kingdom of God is here, he's going to say, your suffering is over. We can have his peace now. But the suffering part, we've got that for just a little bit longer. So he stopped to call her out for her sake. He stopped to call her out for the sake of the crowds and us. They needed to know what he had done. We needed to know that too. We and they needed to see his power. The crowds needed to accept this woman back into their community. But he also did this for the sake of Jairus, who's still standing there. Not really caring too much about the plight of this woman. I mean, Jesus, he's stopping to talk with a homeless woman in the most important moment of Jairus' life. He didn't, probably didn't have a real high view of this, this lady. And as he's standing there, the messengers show up. They arrive from the home of Jairus, leader of the synagogue, and he, he doesn't need to hear what they have to say to know what they are going to say. He can see it on their faces. He knows he's going to hear those words that no parent ever wants to hear. The news that cannot even be processed by a parent initially. The, the sadness that they will carry around with them for the rest of their life, the hole they will carry to their grave. He knew this is what they brought. Your daughter is dead. Your 
daughter is dead. And they said, let's go home. There's no use troubling the teacher now. I mean, what can, what can Jesus do now? I mean, he maybe could have healed her while she was alive. But. And in their defense, I mean, let's not be too hard on the messengers. Dead people don't usually come back to life. They usually stay dead. I mean, sick people get better. But dead people, they don't get better. They're dead. And yet, Jesus ignores what the messengers have to say. And he turns and he speaks directly to Jairus. And he says, Jairus, I need you to look at me. Jairus, you trusted me once. You trusted that I had the power to heal your daughter. And you saw my healing power. Now I need you to trust me with something more. Not just power over disease, but power over death. He says, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Keep believing. Yeah, faith can't quit just because things look bleak. That's not faith. Paul says we, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's not blind faith. But it wouldn't be blind for, for Jairus. He'd already heard so much and he just saw this. Jesus is asking him to connect the dots. That's what our faith needs sometimes. We need to connect to the next dot. And it'll put us in situations like this. We've got to keep on believing. Faith, Jesus says here, is the cure for fear. Are you a fearful person? Faith is the answer. Not trying to deny your fears, but focusing on him. As Psalm 23 verse 4 says... Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're right there beside me. The good shepherd was with Jairus. He had nothing to fear. As long as we're with Christ, we don't need to be afraid. And he was in the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus doesn't bless one person at the expense of another either. I think we're inclined to think, well, either that person gets blessed or I do because there's not enough to go around. It's me or them. And that's where a, a lot of our competitiveness and jealousy comes from. Um, that's not how God works. He's got more than enough blessing to go around. The only limitation is, is not on his end, it's on our end. It's, it's our lack of faith, lack of trust. He was going to bless both of these daughters this day. And so they keep on moving. Jesus tells the rest of the crowd, stop. You guys can't come any further. And he takes just three. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. This is one of only three times he singles these guys out for special, something special. This, this, is, a, this is a big occasion. He's going to do something that is only done a few times in all of Scripture. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. Yeah, the Talmud required that um, they bring in professional mourners. You had to br bring in at least two flautists, flutists, and, a, and at least one professional wailing woman, um, and that was for the poorest. Rich people like Jairus probably had a lot more, but they had to get the, the morning going right away, even before he got back. This is how you found out somebody was dead, is, is you heard the morning in this culture. And the, these funerals would last a week, but they had to try to get the body in the ground as soon as possible. So he saw much commotion, weeping, and wailing. So the funeral's in full swing already. And he went inside and asked what looks like a pretty insensitive question at first. Why all the commotion and weeping? 
I don't know. Have you heard Jesus? And he goes, oh, the child, she's not dead. She's only asleep. Well, she's only asleep. Why is he saying that? She's dead. Well, one reason, and you know, falling asleep was a metaphor they used for death back then. Um, but one reason here is he's trying to protect her from public attention. If the masses find out that she was raised from the dead, she's going to be the, the, the target of all kinds of attention. You know, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the first thing the religious leaders do is make a plan to kill Lazarus because he's living proof that they're wrong about Jesus. She doesn't, he doesn't want that to happen to this girl. He's not ready yet. So he's trying to protect this girl from attention that she doesn't want or need. You know, he is about to wake her up. So, what she's got right now is closer to sleep than death. But, I think part of the reason he says this is because this statement right here could be said about any Christian believer who has ever died. She's not asleep. She's not dead. She's only asleep. He's not dead. He's only asleep, and pretty soon he's going to wake up. That's the hope we have in Christ. He's the one who conquered death. And if we put our trust in him, then he will deliver us out of death. The, the crowd laughed at him. You can see how genuine their grief was. Um, you can tell they're professionals. Immediately turned to the laugh of scorn. But Jesus didn't care. He kicked them all out. Get out of here. Made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. And then he does something you're not going to believe. He takes her hand and he says to her, Talitha kum. What's that mean? Is that some kind of magic spell? Is that like elvish? No. It's Aramaic. This was such a profound moment and so burned into Peter's mind that what he delivers to Mark is the exact Aramaic wording that Jesus used because they spoke Aramaic. And what that means in Aramaic is, little girl, it's time to get up. No potions, no incantations, no arcane magic. Just a simple command, like waking her up in the morning. And he says, little girl, get up. And she gets up. We shouldn't be surprised that he's saying this. He's already said the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son and they'll rise again. When day he's going to tell everybody to get up. And some will rise to eternal life. Some will rise to judgment. It really depends on where you stand with Christ if you put your faith in him, which you can do tonight. In fact, it's a good thing he said, little girl, get up, because... Um, he might have emptied a number of other graves had he not specified <laughs> who he was talking to. And she gets up. And she stands up and walks around. Her parents can't believe it. Here she is. She's dead. And she wakes up from death. And she looks over and Jesus is holding her hand, smiling at her, telling her to get up. And she's fine now. 
This is an experience that every single believer will have. Jesus will tell you to get up, and you will get up, and he will be there smiling. I try to imagine what this was like for the girl. It wasn't for her sake. I mean, she's in heaven. She was perfectly happy there. It was for her parents' sake. It's for our sake to see a glimpse of his power over death. But I do imagine her there, you know, one minute she's there with her heavenly father, and he's telling her what's going to happen. You're going to have to go back, but I'm going to see you again really soon. And then the next moment, she's there with the son holding her hand. And she looks over and she's like, Daddy, I'm back. Needless to say, they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Mark is out of adjectives to describe this scene. This is something they never forgot. Of course, Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. He's like, she was asleep and we had to wake her up. A wink. And he told them to give her something to eat. Because in the Bible, this is how they prove that you're not a ghost. <laughs> you raise from the dead and then you eat something. And uh, she probably hadn't had anything to eat in a while. And I, I would imagine that being dead and rising really gets your appetite going. And so that's, that's our story. Final thoughts. Well, what have we seen? We've seen the four forces that have terrorized humanity since our earliest days. Nature, demons, sickness, death. Jesus showed his power over all of them. He tells the storm to shut up. He tells the demons to get out. A simple touch of his cloak is all that's needed for disease. And with death, he takes the little girl's hand in his and says, it's time to get up. This is the Lord we serve. This is his power, and this is what he will bring one day. But we need to remember, the kingdom of God is not here yet in its final form. What Jesus is giving us here, these are appetizers. These are whetting our appetite for the great wedding feast of the Lamb. This is the trailer getting us excited about the movie, pointing our eyes forward to the sort of things that he's going to do all the time. Um, and, and we'll never have to deal with these again. He will lift the curse. He will make all things new. And you know, nowadays, Jesus is going to heal some diseases, but there's a lot he's not going to heal. He may raise some people from the dead, but most people are going to stay dead. Even the little girl would die again someday. It's a, it's a temporary resuscitation. But one day, one day he will raise everyone. And so we live in that tension. I wanted to share a, a story about a friend of mine whose 17-year-old sister, a few years back, went to, went to bed one night and didn't wake up the next morning. She died in her sleep for some unknown reason. She was just the sweetest, nicest girl. Everybody in their little town loved her. And she was a believer in Christ. And this was incredibly painful. I remember going to that funeral home and just seeing so many people there. It was so sad to see death in its heyday. But then a few months after that, I gave a teaching on death, on the biblical view of death. And he sent me this email afterward. 
that I wanted to share with you guys. I, and he said I could share this. He says, I was really impacted by your teaching, though it was hard to be there to listen to. But during the teaching, Jesus told me something that I was grateful to hear. When my brother called me to tell me that she had died, I was at work and dropped to my knees asking Jesus to let her live, to send her back. The passage where Jesus says, Talitha kum, the one we just read, that was on my mind, he said. And I kept pleading with Jesus to say just that to her. Little girl, I say to you, get up. But he says, during the teaching, Jesus called that back to my mind and told me that he did say that to her. All along, Jesus had been listening and even answering my prayer. Just not in the way I wanted him to. Yeah, he told her to arise, but not here. Arise to be with him. And he can do that if he wants. Some people he brings, brings up a little bit early. And he says... It is really only a short 60, maybe 70 years at most until I see her again. It's painful sometimes to face death and sickness. Some of us are facing this right now. Some of us have this in the days ahead. But what Jesus promises is even though death, death reigns for a little while, in the end life will reign and death will be swallowed up in victory. And... If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we can all look forward to the day he promises at the end in Revelation 21 when he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. And then the one sitting on the throne will say, look, I'm making everything new. That's going to be a good day. Why don't I just pray for us? Lord, thank you that you have defeated these great enemies that we are just powerless against. Lord, we can do a little bit to, to fend off death. We can, we can cure some diseases, but there's so many that we can't, and death, death claims us all. I'm so thankful that you've demonstrated the, your, your superiority over death. And that you ultimately conquered death on the cross by dying and rising again, Lord. We look forward to that day when you will make all things new. And I pray for some of us right now, Lord, that are struggling in our faith. I pray that we would have the kind of faith that steps up, steps out in scary ways. I pray we'd have the kind of faith that hangs in there even when things are hard. And I pray we would not fear but keep on believing even in the face of whatever's going on in our lives. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.